again, if you're in Exodus, we're looking at the third chapter and the fourth chapter. How many, how many of you have ever had a phone call from a telemarketer? Nobody? Okay, somebody, right? I'm sure, I'm sure this is not something that you've done before. Maybe, you know, I'll just give you personal experiences. Sometimes when you have a phone call from a telemarketer, you can instantly know, right? It takes about five seconds to realize that I have a phone call from a telemarketer. It could be like the delay, right? There's a, there's a moment where you say hello and nobody says hello back. There's like a three to five second delay. You're like, okay, here, here's one of those. Or there's a three to five second delay and then the person comes online and then there is the sound and the ambiance of a call center. Anybody, anybody ever experienced that? Where you hear people in the background and you know that this is the moment that somebody's about to call me and try to, you know, sell me something, right? Cupcakes, I don't know, cupcake mix, something. Somebody's about to sell me something. And so you have a moment, and maybe this isn't you, maybe this is just me, but you have a moment within that zero to seven seconds to hang up. Like I said, you guys are way holier than I am, so this probably doesn't include you. But every once in a while, when I'm in a rush, or every once in a while, I'm just like, you know what, today's not the day. If it takes five seconds to get to me, that's five seconds too long, and I just hang up, right? And I'm just like, if it's important, somebody will call back or leave a message. Like I said, I'm just sharing. I'm just confessing openly to my brothers and sisters. This is not something that I'm sure you guys have any problems with. So I'm just telling you that sometimes you know when a certain call is given to you, right? And I think that's the same way when God calls. There are certain indicators, certain things that we know and certain things that you might sense and certain things that you might just realize within your bones. And here is a moment in which God is calling a man in Exodus chapter 3. And the indicators are as clear as day that it is God who is, in fact, calling him. I want to key in on two different thoughts this morning as we think about this call. I want to key in on the God who calls, and then I want to key in on the the one whom he calls. The God who is calling and the man who God is calling. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, It reads, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Moses comes in contact with the one who calls, the God who calls. Out of the gate in this chapter, the the, the one who is calling Moses immediately appears to be anything but ordinary. He is not common. We see this for a number of reasons, but obviously we see this because this God who is calling is calling him from a bush, a bush that's burning. The first thing that we understand when we look at this bush is that that is burning, but it's not consumed. In other words, we learn about this God from this bush that this God is self-sufficient. 
You see, the bush, again, is burning, but it's not consumed, and that is not ordinary. That is not common. That's not something that you and I see every day. In fact, there is what you call in science a fire triangle, right? And in the fire triangle, it's three things that every fire needs, aside from the chemical reaction and combustion. There is the oxygen that the fire needs. There is the heat that the fire needs. And lastly, I'm sure you all know this, it is the fuel that the fire needs. The fire needs, any fire needs fuel. Now, in a vegetation fire, let's say, and hopefully this doesn't happen this morning, but let's say the grass catches fire. The grass will have oxygen. The fire will supply its own heat. But where will the fuel come from in the grass? The grass itself. The grass serves as fuel. Just like in any leaf fire, the leaves serve as fuel, which, which, is the re which explains the reason why after a, a, after a while on a pile of leaves, when there's no more leaves left to be burned, the fire goes out. Why? Because the fuel is gone. But here in this scene, what's amazing is that there is a bush that's burning, but it is not consumed. In other words, the bush is not using any of the fuel. The fuel itself is being supplied supernaturally. The fuel itself is being created out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing. The fire is being produced. What does that tell you? That tells you that the one who is speaking from the bush doesn't need the bush to create the fire. He is himself self Sufficient. One of the first things that we learn when we look at this bush is that God is unbound. That he is not bound to natural laws, that he is not bound to natural limitations, that he, the one that calls Moses in this moment, is not confined to the same restrictions as Moses, nor us. He has no need for anyone or anything. And so you must understand, taking, taking this picture, you must understand that God doesn't call anyone because he needs them. He produces whatever he wants, whenever he wants. In Genesis 1, we hear the words, God said, let there be light, and light came into being. He doesn't call because he needs. When God calls us, it isn't to feel some void within himself. Rather, when God calls us, it is to accept an invitation to join him in his work in the world. He is offering you a chance to participate in what he is doing in the world when he calls you. It is privilege, not obligation. Do you understand that? You see, God is able to supply whatever it is that he desires to supply. So this is an invitation in which he is giving Moses to participate. If Moses doesn't want to participate, if Moses refuses, God, in fact, can go, go himself or send someone else. But not only do we learn this when we look at this self-sufficient God in this burning bush, but we also know that God is able to supply whatever we lack. If God can produce fuel from where there is no fuel, then certainly he can give us capability where we may think there is no capability. And he can provide gifting where we believe we aren't gifted enough. 
God can produce whatever he desires to produce, whenever he desires to produce, in whomever he desires to produce. So this is a self-sufficient God, but this burning bush also tells us that this is a holy God. This is a righteous God. You know, me and Candy, before we moved into the city to plant City Light, we lived in the county all the way out down Fisher Ferry, just a few blocks from Mrs. Bird, in fact. And while we were there, there was a moment, you know, we had a huge yard with a lot of leaves, and so we were cleaning up leaves. And there was a moment in the cleaning of those or the piling of those leaves where you have to burn those leaves. And in the county, you can burn a lot more leaves than, you know, than obviously you can do in the city. And we were having a leaf burn one day, and it was a beautiful moment, wonderful moment. Me and the boys were out. Candy was out. It was so nice. And we were just watching the flame and talking and reminiscing and In the midst of all of this beauty, there was somehow a moment in this leaf burn where the gasoline can or the gasoline canister that we were using to burn the leaves, the nozzle caught fire. And immediately, this beautiful moment proceeded to move to chaos instantly and panic and screaming and put it out and, and, and all of that. From, from beauty to chaos in an instant, from beauty to life on the line, from beauty to, oh, my God, I'm going to kill my children in a leaf, in a leaf pile burn. And so we eventually got it out, right? But it showed me something about fire. Fire is beautiful to look at, but it's also dangerous if you're not careful. God, in this moment, from this burning bush, presents an image that Moses is drawn to. He sees it and he says to himself, I need to go and take a look at this bush. He starts to get closer, and he starts to get closer, and he starts to get closer when he hears these words from God in verse 5. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. And Moses had his face, hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This was a beautiful fire, but this was a holy fire. God is beautiful, and yet God is holy. You see, this is the same God that, that, that is described in Isaiah and described in Revelations as holy, holy, holy. The theologian R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, says that that, that that description of God, holy, 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 is speaking of God in superlative terms. In other words, the holiest of the holy. It's the only adjective to describe God in the Bible that is spoken of in this way. You never hear that God is love, love, love. You never hear that God is mercy, mercy, mercy. You never hear that God is gracious, 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 even though you you know and you realize that he is all these things. But what you do hear, the angels in Revelations and in Isaiah, you hear them say that he is holy, holy, holy. In other words, he is unlike any other in all of the known universe and unknown universe. He is set apart from all things. He is sacred. He is beautiful. And yet, if we trifle with him, he is dangerous. 
And so Moses is in the midst of the holy, holy, holy God. You know, according to Numbers, there was this, there was this special group of people that were charged with carrying the precious things of God. And this special group of people was, um, they had an opportunity at one point in time in 2 Samuel to carry such things. 2 Samuel chapter 6. The Ark of the Covenant was being returned to the people of God after being held by the Philistines. And as the Ark of the Covenant was coming back into the town, they were celebrating and rejoicing. And in their celebration and their rejoicing, there was a moment where the Ark tilted over. And one of the people that were specifically called to handle this ark reached out with his hand to catch it. And when he touched that holy instrument of God, he immediately died. The Bible said God's anger was kindled. and He died instantly. And King David said, I don't want this thing anywhere near us. But what King David didn't realize was that it was a representation of God's holiness. You see, they carried it in, but they didn't cover it as they were instructed to do in Numbers. They carried it in casually. They carried it in trifling. And so when it fell and the man touched it, it was a demonstration. It was an example to all that you don't trifle with God, that he is beautiful, but he is holy as well. In fact, in fact, not only did they not cut, or rather God is in this moment showing judgment that appears harsh, and yet his mercy is on display. Do you wonder why? Do you know why? In that moment, when the ark fell, the reality, the reality of the moment was that it was uncovered. And the scripture says that no one was even supposed to look on the holy things, meaning that. Not only was that man supposed to die that day, but everybody that looked at that uncovered ark that day should have been dead. God was demonstrating his holiness and yet was demonstrating his mercy in that moment. You see this tension on display in this moment where God is demonstrating his holiness, but he's telling Moses, take off your shoes and don't come any closer. Because drawing any closer might be deadly for you. And so Moses hides his face. So this is a holy God, and this is a self-sufficient God. This is a God, in fact, that we hear his name in verse 13. It says, then Moses said to God, if I came to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He says, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In that name, we hear about God's self-sufficiency, and in that name, we hear about God's holiness. You see, typically in a name, there is some connection to the past, some, found, some connection back to origin. For example, when I say, my name is Brian Crawford, then you might ask, well, who are the Crawfords? I came from someone. There's an origin for me. But when God says, I am that I am, what God is saying is that I have no origins. There is no one that came before me. There is no one that produced me. God is speaking to his self-sufficiency. 
But God is also speaking to his holiness when he says, I am that I am. Why? In other words, there is none other like me. I stand apart and I stand alone from all others. And so here in a name, we hear about God's self-sufficiency. And here in a name, we hear about God's exclusivity. But what about the one that is called? That's the one who calls. What about the one that is called Moses? You know, one interesting point about Moses in these two chapters, and it takes shape very early in, the, in, in, the, in chapter 3, is Moses' life has gone from relative obscurity as a newborn child, sent literally down the river by his mother to protect him, to from relative obscurity to royal celebrity. He's found by the daughter of Pharaoh and adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh, rises to prominence in Pharaoh's kingdom, and then all of a sudden, he sees a scruffle, and then and he sees a scruffle with an Egyptian against his kin. He, in defense of his kin, kills the Egyptian, and then, of course, he's ran out of the kingdom, chased out of the kingdom with the threat of death, and he escapes, and he's exiled. And now we see him go from relative obscurity as a young newborn baby floating down a river to royal celebrity being raised in the kingdom of Pharaoh back to relative obscurity as a man exiled from the kingdom. And this man in this kingdom is, is I mean, that's been exiled. He's been exiled for 40 years. He's 80 years old. He's, he's an older man. And he's a shepherd. And if you've read through Genesis, then you realize that Egyptians despise shepherds. So not only is he an older man, not only is he a forgotten man, but he's a despised man. And this is where God calls him. Notice that God doesn't call him at the top. God calls him at the bottom. You know, sometimes we think that, right? When we see celebrities, we say to ourselves, oh, man, if so-and-so got saved, whoo, man, they probably could change the world, right? I mean, when Kanye West gets saved, right? Everybody's like, oh, man, that's a game changer now. Kanye West got saved. And I mean, it's cool when Kanye West got saved. I'm excited about it. But God isn't in heaven like, oh, man, I need Kanye West, you know? He's, Kanye, okay, Kanye West got saved. God doesn't need the celebrity. He can find anyone in absolute obscurity to do his work and to move as he chooses them, uh, to move them. He is being used by God, not at the top. He is being used by God at the very bottom. Some of you in this moment, you feel very small. This pandemic has done that to a lot of us. We feel very small. We feel very insignificant. We feel very obscure. We feel forgotten. But just because you feel that way, it doesn't make it, doesn't make you useless to God. God has not forgotten you. He still knows your name. In fact, it is here that, that Moses living in relative obscurity and nobody knows him, that he hears God call him by his name, Moses, Moses. No matter where you have been, no matter where you are, we can have great confidence that God knows ultimately where we are going. He knows our name, which means he knows our destiny. So God calls this man 
out of relative obscurity. But where does God call him to? He calls him back to Egypt. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, last week we talked about the children of Israel in their captivity and in their slavery and in their injustice and exploitation. They cried out to God in that moment. Verse 23 of chapter 2, it says they cried out for help and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob and God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And it's this cry that God refers back to Moses or God refers back to when he's speaking to Moses in chapter 3 verse 7. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. God said, I heard them. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Again, it is important to remember that when you cry, God hears. That when you weep, God hears. When you are afflicted and oppressed, God sees. When you are praying for deliverance, God will indeed respond. God calls Moses again, not because he needs Moses, but because he is inviting Moses to participate in his work of deliverance of Israel from bondage. And his work of deliverance, not only from bondage, but remember, deliverance is not just what we're being delivered from, but what we're being delivered to. And so he is delivering them from bondage to freedom to worship him. You see, if God is watching and if God will respond, I'm here to confidently say that, that, that yes, he has been, yes, he is, and yes, he will respond to you as well. That if you cry out to him, he hears you. In fact, in describing the nature of salvation, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those that cry out to God will be heard by God. He is listening. He does see. He will respond. With that said, how does God choose to respond here to Israel? And how does God choose to respond to Moses? Exodus 3 and 10 gives us the answer. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So here is God's plan. Everybody ready? Go get my people. There is no strategy. There's no, okay, no, okay, here. We're going to draw up some plans, and, and we're going to send you through the back door. We're going to send you down the river. We're going to smuggle you in um, through, through cargo. No, there, there's none of that. This is not Mission Impossible. This is just Moses, go get my people. That's the plan. Which obviously brings up another question. God, what do I go get them with? What is in me that qualifies me? To go get them. I have no resources. Apparently, or at least it doesn't appear to be a really good plan you formulated. So how do I go? 
And this is what Moses wrestles with God over two chapters about. How do I go? First, he talks about his own credentials in verse 11 of chapter 3. He says this, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses asked a, a perfect question. God, I'm 80 years old. I've been gone for 40 years. And when I left, I was ran out of town. I'm a shepherd, an old shepherd that has lost credibility, not, with, not just with the Egyptians, but has lost credibility with the Israelites. They didn't even like me when I left. So who am I that I should go? And God responds to Moses in verse 12, and he says this, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Moses says, Lord, I have no credentials. God says, I'll be with you. Moses raises a second excuse, a valid one. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to me, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. God, not only do I have no credentials, I have no credibility. Like I said, when I left, they didn't like me. I was ran out of town. God responds to Moses, and he says in verse 2, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff, and he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it, because Moses is being Moses. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of our fathers, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, God says, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Moses said, I have no credibility. I'm an old man. And apparently I'm, I'm a little jittery which is why I jumped when I saw the snake. But God says, what? I am with you. Moses raises a third excuse in, in verse 10 of chapter 4. Moses said, oh, Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. I mean, good leaders have to know how to speak well, right? And I've never been able to speak well. For the last 80 years, I haven't spoken well. So, Lord, you need a capable leader. If you're going to send someone for deliverance, you need someone that is capable, right? God responds. Verse 11, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, listen, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Moses said, I can't speak. God said, who created you? In other words, don't you know that I've watched you stumble in speech 
for the last 80 years of your life? And yet I'm calling you. What does that mean? That means that any capability that you do not have, I will supply it. Whether it go through your mouth or whether it go through someone else's mouth, I will resource you. Whatever it is you need. In other words, I will be with you. Moses raises a final excuse in verse 13, but he said, oh, Lord, please send someone else. And then verse 14 happens. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Listen, verse 15. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with your brother. God gets angry. Why does God get angry? Has nothing to do with Moses doubting himself. This isn't about self-doubt. It's about God-doubt. It's about the fact that I've sent you. And so if I have sent you, it doesn't matter what you think you could do. It doesn't matter how qualified you think you are. It doesn't matter how credible you think you are. It doesn't matter how capable you think you are. If I have sent you, then you must go. Because when you go, I will be with you every step of the way. If you're listening to God speak to Moses right now, you notice a trend. You notice a theme at work, and it is this. The one who goes among us is not nearly as important as the one who is going with us. It doesn't matter who he sends. As long as he goes with the one he sends, everything else will be okay. Moses is not important in this story. God going with Moses is important to this story. And neither are you important to your story. God going with you is what's important to your story. I know there are some things that's going on in your life right now that you're saying to yourself, I just don't know if I can make it. And you would be right if God wasn't with you. You would be absolutely right if God wasn't going. But God is going. He goes with you. And because he goes with you, yes, you absolutely can make it. And you will make it. So Moses goes Obscure as he is, with little credibility, with little qualifications, but he goes with God. And thus, that is all he needs. You know, God's greatest act of deliverance didn't even include us. Jesus came down and saved us apart from us. Saved us without, his, without our help. Saved us without our assistance, saved us without our capability, saved us without our credibility, came down in the form, wrapped himself in human flesh, 
and live the life that none of us were capable to live because it wasn't about us and died the death that we all deserve to die. So God shows himself to be a deliverer apart from us through his son Jesus. And so when we see Jesus deliver us apart from us, then we know that everything else in life that God calls us to do, he can do apart from us. In fact, one of the greatest things, one of the greatest promises that we ever hear in scripture is before Jesus leaves. We hear Jesus say the words, lo, I will be with you always, even until the end of the ages. The sweetest words that fallible people like you and me could ever hear, that incapable people like you and me could ever hear, that people that lack credibility like you and me could ever hear, that I will be with you. I will go with you. You know, this morning, if, I, if, I, if I'm honest with you and I confess openly to you, and I don't know, sometimes the Lord just does things like this when, we're, when we are in a moment of preparation and study for a text. But this morning, I probably felt the least capable of doing this than I have felt in years, that I have, that I have felt since we planted this church, that literally in this moment, as I am preparing, to preach, I found myself just saying to myself, what are you doing? You're not qualified to do this. You're not very good at it. What are you doing? And it was in that moment that I was reminded of the text that I was about to preach to you guys. That it isn't about me. That the only reason or the only hope that I have, that when I go forth and whatever God has called me, the only hope that I have, that it will be successful, that it will be pleasing to him, is that he goes with me. And so in that moment, I was reminded to just ask the Lord, Lord, come with me. I'm not capable. I'm not qualified. I'm not able. But Lord, go with me. And I know that's your cry for, I know, I know in this room, or I know in this courtyard this morning, that is the cry for many of you. As you reflect over your life and you look at everything that's in front of you, and you look at all the mountains that seem to be surrounding you, you're saying, I am not capable of this. And saints, let me, let me encourage you by saying that that is exactly where you need to be. So that your trust and your dependence and your reliance would not be on yourself, but it would be on God. And so go, make his name famous. Go, share the gospel. Go, live on mission. Go, love neighbor with everything that you have. But never go saying to yourself that I'm going because I'm great. Always, be, always remind yourself that the only reason I'm able to go it's because he goes with me. Would you pray with me?